0: Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Lindsay Draft, CEO of The Forward Party, a newly formed political party that intends to bring power back to the majority of Americans and take it away from the fringes. Imagine a world in which the will of the plurality rules, where the 70 to 80% of Americans who support things like gun laws and abortion and climate action have their say instead of being governed by extremists. With the support of political luminaries from both major parties like Andrew Yang, Evan McMullen, David Jolly, and Christine Todd Whitman, the forward party is premised on a bottom-up approach where communities dictate policy, not the parties. How? Through the transformative power of electoral reforms like ranked choice voting, open primaries, and independent redistricting committees that motivate candidates to appeal to the majority of voters. Listen to Lindsay and decide for yourself, is this a utopian pipe dream or a realistic path out of our broken and polarized political system? And now here's my conversation with Lindsay Drath. Lindsay Drath, welcome to New Faces of
1: Democracy. Thank you for having me, Nancy.
0: So Lindsay, I'd love to start with talking about the forward party's motto, not left, not right, forward. I'd love that motto, but I'd love to hear what you think that says.
1: Well, it's funny that you start with that, Nancy. One of the things that I challenge folks, myself included, to do is to move beyond the single axis binary definition of the political spectrum with the notion that on one side of the political spectrum, you have beyond progressive kind of socialist politics. And on the far right, you have conservatism that is now we're seeing leading to you know authoritarianism. And right now that is the shorthand by which we describe ourselves in our political system as Americans. You are left, right, or center. And I would like for folks to think about more of a triangulated version of how we can approach a new party in the United States. What does it look like to introduce a y-axis and have kind of a scatter map, right? Where you think, okay, well, actually I feel this way on issues of gun violence prevention. I feel this way as relates to our national defense. I feel this way in relation to women's reproductive rights. And that doesn't necessarily always fall on a singular axis. So that being said, we have been in the process of conducting a, a messaging group, a working group led by one of our wonderful senior advisors who used to run global B2B marketing for Google. And she's conducted hours and hours of interviews with folks who are already involved in the forward party and then folks who are, you know, a little bit forward curious and folks who are kind of forward skeptics. And one of the things that universally rang true was how much everybody loved not left, not right, but forward. So we didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. But it does resonate with folks and people, as you mentioned, it did with you. But what I would like for us to be able to explore and for us to learn is what is new vernacular look like whereby you can explain your role as an independently minded American as relates to American politics that doesn't invoke some of the shorthand that we typically go to, like centrist or moderate. Because centrism, again, that means that you're participating in the process and acknowledging that this is all kind of a a single axis binary. Moderate actually has a really negative connotation when you talk to folks about it because there's an idea that you're squishy, that you don't have strong convictions on any issue. I think if people use the shorthand of moderate, I like thinking about moderation and tone, how we talk to each other, how we communicate with each other, that it can have a moderating impact. But how we describe ourselves as a new political party is we're pioneering.
0: So that said, I mean, I think most of us agree that we would love to see an alternative to the left and the right. How is the Forward Party trying to solve this problem?
1: Well, unfortunately for our nation, fortunately for us as a movement, not just those of us at Forward, but kind of the entire new healthy democracy space right now, we are looking to build the constructs of a new competitive political party. It is not the why. The why is to create a system by which we have a functional representative government where our elected officials are held accountable. That's the why. The how is building a party. There are other partners in our space whose how is the introduction of structural democracy reforms like ranked choice voting or nonpartisan primaries. There are a number of bridge building coalition efforts, you know, in kind of the new and healthy democracy space. So there is an incredible tradition of really fantastic work in the voting rights space, which is critically important. But we would say it's not just a matter of people turning up to vote. It's a matter of making sure that your vote counts. And how do we have more voices, more competition, more choice? And that's what the Forward Party is working on. And what
0: was the genesis of the Forward Party? How did it all start?
1: So the genesis of the Forward Party actually is the result of three legacy organizations. One, where the name... Was transferred. So Andrew Yang obviously ran as a change maker for president of the United States in 2020. And he ran on a platform of universal basic income. His ability to take a notion that was not familiar to the American public and make it something that was so much more resonant was pretty remarkable. I think the track is, and we can look this up, Nancy, but I think it had like a 65% rate of growth in saliency and understanding. So Andrew had a record of a change maker previously doing stuff outside of the traditional norms of party politics, even though he ran as a Democrat as part of that primary. And Andrew became really, really excited by the notion of some of the structural democracy reforms out there, like final five voting, so the combination of a nonpartisan primary with a ranked choice voting general election. So to that end, Andrew launched an initiative called the Forward Party. He wrote a book called Forward and was working towards, again, the how, not the why, but the how that he was working towards was the creation of a new political party in the United States. There was another organization. Also, their how was similar. It was a group called the Save America Movement. It was a group that came together following President Trump's election and they did achieve ballot access in New York and in Connecticut. So their focus was, again, creation of a new political party to disrupt the two-party status quo. A third legacy organization had gone through a couple of iterations. It was called Stand Up Republic, and it was led by a guy named Evan McMullen, who ended up running as a third-party candidate, or an independent candidate rather, last year in, in Utah and gave Mike Lee a pretty killer run for his money. And he was joined there by Governor Christy Todd Whitman from New Jersey and Miles Taylor, who was the chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration and was the whistleblower there who wrote an anonymous letter to the New York Times. So that group was, their how was not the creation of a third party. Their how was really educating people about the harms of this extremist community of elected officials that we were dealing with. So those three organizations did the impossible, which they came together and said, we're all here for the same why, and we're all looking to affect change in this country. Let's eliminate redundancies and find places where we can align and merge our efforts. And they did that, which anyone who's been part of any sort of a merger knows how difficult that is, especially in politics where you know passions run deep and the political community is not unlike any other where egos exist. And everybody was able to put all that aside and they went through a structural merger in July of 2022. So that was the origins of the party. And the agreement amongst the three organizations was that their how was the creation of a new, durable, credible, and sustainable political party in the United States.
0: So those are some people who got a lot of political luminaries, certainly, but they come from if we're gonna talk about the spectrum. I know that's you're trying to break out of that, but they do come from very different parts of it. And I believe that Save America was, was that David Jolly's
1: David Jolly, former member of Congress from Florida. Right. Republican. And former member. Republican, mm-hmm. right? Republican Left the Republican member. Party. Yep.
0: And then you have Andrew Yang, Democrat or not. He ran on that ticket. And of course, Christine Todd Whitman, a conservative how do those people meet in the middle policy-wise? And I guess, what are the forward parties' policies, sort of substantive policies beyond electoral reform?
1: Uh Where they are able to meet in the middle is their acknowledgement of the fact that there is not a one-size-fits-all solution to any one of America's many, many problems. So whether it's immigration, homelessness, Healthcare reform, climate change. We are a big and diverse nation. And even within the two party system right now, yes, the Republican Party and yes, the Democratic Party both adopt platforms. Within those parties, you've got a wide range of elected officials in terms of how they view those policy solutions. And so instead of pretending that a top down approach where a bunch of policy positions are determined by Folks in kind of an ivory tower and then push down prescriptively to folks all across the country. The collective decision was made that this should be a bottom up creation so that actually those, those very particular solutions to these key issues facing our nation should be advanced by the communities and by the voters. And when elected officials or, or candidates take positions on a particular issue, the voters should be able to exercise their vote to deem whether or not they feel it's the appropriate solution to any particular challenge that we're facing.
0: So basically policy would come by the voters choosing in whatever locality or state election a forward party candidate is in, voters choosing the candidate who represents their values best, putting aside prescripted platforms from the party.
1: Exactly. Now, we have a set of values and principles, and each of our state parties actually engage in a formal affiliation agreement. It is a legal document whereby they do make a commitment to uphold those values and principles and apply those values and principles when building out the infrastructure of a functional state party that can then subsequently recruit and run candidates. So there is a central thread that weaves throughout all of the work and all of the communities and states. That being said, what you started to touch on, Nancy, has been a sticky wicket for us. And that is that we formally launched this party. It was a launch pad in, in July of last year, we have subsequently been creating the infrastructure and recruiting party members across the country, state by state, but we don't have candidates yet. So what does that look like in the interim period, that kind of Delta that we have to close Before I can point to candidates in San Francisco and Schenectady who have different approaches to issues like homelessness, right? So what we have landed on actually, and and we're really excited about this half step because it is authentic to our commitment of being a bottom up party. But what we have done is right now you've got dozens and dozens of states that are actively in the middle of legislative sessions. And you have elected officials there who are introducing bills to address many of these issues where a bill has been introduced in a particular statehouse that upholds the values and the principles of the forward party, something that is consensus-driven, that's solutions-oriented, that's been advanced in a bipartisan capacity, we encourage our state parties to weigh in on that and endorse those bills and similarly celebrate the legislators that are advancing that work. By the same token, if there is legislation and lawmaking that has been advanced and proposed, that runs in direct opposition of our values and principles. So something that is extreme in nature, something that is not advanced with a bipartisan support, we encourage them to oppose those bills and point to things to say, this is an example of extremism. that's a question we get oftentimes. They say, well, you're the anti-extremist party. How do you define extremism? Well, now we're actually encouraging our states and their teams to point to particular pieces of legislation. So that then as national, when folks say, well, what are your positions on Gun violence prevention, I can say, well, here's an example of how our Connecticut State Party weighed in on lawmaking in the state of Connecticut, and here's an example of how our Tennessee State Party weighed in. They are not going to be exactly the same, but they are going to, again, share those values and principles and shirk the extremes in driving for solutions.
0: So when you say share values and principles, can you give me some examples of things that your state parties have supported in state legislatures and things that you have I mean, I can think of things that you probably haven't supported because it seems like there's a lot of extremist legislation going on out there. But what's something that falls within the values and policies?
1: So this is a brand new strategy that we are working with. So our Texas state party, for example, right now, there is a ban on women's access to an abortion after 12 weeks. A Republican member of the state legislature in Texas introduced a bill that would allow for exceptions in case of rape and incest. So that would be an indication of where the Texas State Party would say. And unfortunately, it's, you know, I think many would share that that's not enough, but that it is an incremental step in a state that has a history of restricting access for women in in, in terms of their, their own reproductive health. Okay.
0: You brought up the just hypothetical of gun control legislation in Tennessee versus gun control legislation in Connecticut. And I'm sure, very different feelings about that. Is it possible that the forward party could have very different versions in different states? For instance, maybe is it possible that you're much more pro-gun rights, as people refer to them in Tennessee, whereas in Connecticut, you're going to be for massive gun control laws that would never fly in Tennessee and that it's sort of it's going to be different based on localities?
1: I think the Texas party is an example of the fact that the, the members themselves did not feel that the piece of legislation related to exceptions in cases of rape and incest, it is a baby step. I mean, it in no way, shape or form represented the desire of the party leadership and this relates to this issue. And I'm speaking in broad strokes now, but specifically to some of the conversations I had with their leads but they acknowledged that in a state that had a long time history of being incredibly restrictive when it comes to women's access to reproductive health, that this was an incremental step in the right direction. So oftentimes it's, you know, you're working with what you have and being realistic about getting things done and being pragmatic. We look at the realities in Tennessee right now and the notion of, you know, I think people could endorse a particular piece of legislation and be really excited about it. What are the realities of actually that making its way to a bill.
0: So your website lays out what seems to be the sort of pillars of the party's philosophy in terms of electoral reform. Do you want to talk about those?
1: Yeah, I think oftentimes people who, and this gets a little wonky, right? I mean, it's right now Americans are scared. They're frustrated. We're highly emotional as a nation. We have a government that is not accountable to its citizenry and to its voters, And so when we immediately launch into uh, discussion of electoral reform, it doesn't necessarily quench that thirst and assuage those, those frustrations that Americans share, but they are extraordinarily transformative in their adoptions. So the excitement here is that to create structural reforms whereby you can actually run multiple candidates on a ticket without facing that kind of spoiler effect that folks always talk about is really exciting for a new political party in this country. You know, people are quick to point to Ross Perot for having handed the, you know, the presidential election to Bill Clinton or to Ralph Nader for having pulled votes away from Al Gore. So I think that our being able to run new candidates in a way that's a different voting system is really exciting. And those two things... Folks, you know, kind of will talk about it, chicken and the egg, but doing these things concurrently, I think is what's really exciting right now.
0: So can you explain sort of the nuts and bolts of how you're, I mean, on the platform, you have ending gerrymandering, ranked choice voting, and nonpartisan primaries.
1: How do those avoid the spoiler effect? So a nonpartisan primary allows all voters to participate in a primary. So I'll give you an example Maryland, for example, closed party primaries. So you have to be a registered member of one of the two existing parties in order to participate in a primary. Right now, 93% of congressional districts are decidedly red or blue. They're not competitive, which means you've got 7% of congressional districts that are competitive. Well, if it's a closed party primary, you're only going to have Republicans or Democrats voting in that party primary. And it tends to be that the more extreme participants in a party, members of a party, are the ones that turn out in a primary. So you end up, you know, Governor Larry Hogan, huge approval rating in the state of Maryland, considered a a very pragmatic Republican in a purple to blue state, endorsed a woman named Kelly Schultz, who was his Commerce Secretary, as his successor. And she lost in the Republican Party primary because she didn't run as close to Donald Trump as her opponent. He was not someone who was representative of the broader swath of the electorate of Marylanders. And so he was not competitive going into the general election. So what ended up happening is you ended up with a gubernatorial elect in Westmore, who essentially was elected by just a small portion of the electorate, which is the registered Democrats who then subsequently turn out in a primary. So nonpartisan primaries eliminate that in that you have every single candidate listed on one single ballot. And you can choose whomever you want. If you want to vote for, you know, a Democrat and you're a Republican, you can. If you're a registered independent, you can also vote for whomever you want. And, you know, as we're seeing every day, 49% of Americans are now self-identifying as independents. It's just been an extraordinary shift. You've got people leaving both parties at incredible rates. Gen Z especially has even higher rates. 52% of Gen Z right now self-identifies as registered independents, and they're effectively locked out of the system. They don't have a vote. We partner with an organization and have good friends over at a group called Veterans for Political Innovation, and it's just incredible. Their members are you know men and women who have served our country bravely put their lives on the line. And if they register as an independent in states with closed party primaries, they can't vote. (laughs) It's crazy. So nonpartisan primaries eliminate that. Ranked choice voting is an instant runoff. So it actually is a way to ensure that whomever crosses the finish line actually represents the majority, the will of the majority of the people. So the least represented candidate, the candidate with the least amount of votes falls off the bottom of the ballot, And whomever the second choice for those individuals were, they recalibrate and assign those second choice. So, you know, one of the things that folks push back on, of course, you know, the members of the two-party status quo as relates to ranked choice voting is, well, it's too complicated for people. And I'm going, well, have you ever been to a restaurant and said, ooh, I really want the fried chicken? oh, they're out of fried chicken. Okay, well, the spaghetti looked good to me. I'll have the spaghetti, right? Like this is just, it's not that complicated of a notion. And people, you know, you're going to be a lot happier with your number two choice than you were someone that you didn't have a vote for at all. So ranked choice voting, we think is a really exciting innovation and it's being adopted more and more broadly across the country, especially at the municipal level. We're really excited to see municipalities adopting it. Gerrymandering, obviously huge problem in our country. So we work to advance the introduction of independent redistricting commissions that are nonpartisan redistricting commissions, or in some states, it's stipulated that half is Republican, half is Democrat, with usually a tiebreaker of a couple of, of independents to actually get in and, and redraw those districts. And depending on the state, those can be introduced via ballot measure or through a legislative initiative.
0: Right. That seems like the trickiest element of all of this because... There's a lot of entrenched interests running the state legislatures right now in the Republican Party who are there simply because of gerrymandering, who have their majority because of gerrymandering. So I would love to see that change. And it seems like the hardest thing to change of of all your proposals.
1: Well, the thing about gerrymandering that's interesting, and this is like a much longer conversation, Nancy, but if you look at the way... You know, Americans are starting to self sort. Yes, gerrymandering is a huge problem. And if you look at legislative districts around the country and congressional districts, it's crazy. I mean, they're like these wacky shapes. It's no puzzle a toddler could ever put together. It'd be like a really advanced jigsaw puzzle. But it also is representative of, the, of how people are self sorting themselves as Americans, how we are less diverse within our communities. And so I think that as much as gerrymandering is a critical issue for us to address, it doesn't address how we're choosing to self sort and live only in kind of a tribal capacity with people who think like us. So the exciting thing that we can do within that system is to look down ballot at a lot of these local races where we do have an opportunity. There are 520,000 seats of elected offices in this country, you know, over half a million. 70% 70% go uncontested. So not just not competitive, like I was talking about those congressional districts, 93% of which are, are not competitive, uncontested. You know, Massachusetts has nine congressional districts. Last election cycle, all nine of them, they weren't even able to field a candidate to oppose the sitting member of Congress. So if you look down ballot at all those opportunities... I even think about my local neighborhood, you know, your local neighborhood representation. Do you ever think that those people are they ever held up for re-election against somebody? Is anyone even running in that seat? So what we're able to do from the ground up to start to get folks involved civically, run folks as forward party candidates, run folks as independent candidates, if that's what the ballot you know option is, and then have them participate in lawmaking, that will be a new bench. It will be a new bench. And when do you see that happening in terms of your growth? Next year. 2024. 2024. We're going to be running hundreds and hundreds of candidates up and down the ballot across the country.
0: Are you in every state?
1: We are in 47 states right now. So the way the forward party is organized right now is we have about 40,000 people who have come to us and said, I want to be a forwardist. I want to be involved with you. And that can look a number of different ways they can want to participate in signature gathering campaigns to achieve ballot access in their state. They can want to convene and be part of a community and get together in person with people. They can want to amplify our message via social media activity. They can make a donation. There's a whole host of ways people can exercise their involvement as a member of the forward party. Amongst those 40,000 volunteers, we have just shy of 300 people who have come to us and said, I want to do more. I want to actually Be instrumental in constructing what a state party is going to look like in my state. And so right now we have 285 people who have come to us and said, I'm willing to commit about 10 hours a week, eight to 10 hours a week of my own personal time. And I will tell you, that is the baseline threshold. These folks are unbelievable. They are giving of their time, their treasure, their brilliant political acumen. And we've got 285 people who have gone through an onboarding and training process to serve as a state lead. And as a state lead, they are creating those infrastructures of state party building. Take it down one more level. We have eight states where those state leads, and it depends on the state, you know, how many state leads a particular state has, but that's happening in 47 states right now where we have those states leads functioned. In eight states, we have folks who have gone one step further and formed executive committees where they are ratifying bylaws. They are standing up their own independent bank accounts. And that's where we kind of kick them out of the nest and they start to function more independently, which is our goal state by state. Of eight states that have executive committees, we actually have six states right now who have some kind of formal legal recognition as a party. So somehow they are actually recognized by the state as a party. And in the state of Florida, we actually already have ballot access, which is really exciting.
0: Would the New York Forward Party, do you think that might lean more closer to Democratic principles and what a party and to go back to Tennessee, for instance, do you think that leans more Republican just in terms of talking again about the localities? Like I was going to ask you where you feel like the forward party sits between the two parties, the two big parties.
1: Yeah. The interesting thing is, you know, folks ask about our constituent base, you know, who's your likely constituent base. And what's interesting is, When California, for example, so California has a top two primary system that they passed 10 years ago. So they just celebrated their 10th anniversary. And when they did that, one of their strategies was to identify independent voters, understand what motivates those independent voters and really turn them out for that ballot initiative. And the independent voter for so long has been thought of as kind of this like unicorn enigma, like who is the independent voter? Who is this person? And a woman named Jackie Saylett is on our board who has kind of been considered the longtime godmother of the independent voter. And it's really interesting because when you think about that, it used to be, well, we know who Democrats are, we know who Republicans are. The independent voter is no longer this unicorn. It's really, it's right now we've got 49% of the American people self-identifying as independent, but then you take folks who are voting across the aisle as well. You're looking at 70% of the American populace. You've got, you know, roughly 13 to 15% of folks who are far extreme on, you know, the traditional left Scale, you've got another 13 to 15 percent who are hyper conservative on the right, and then you have this wide swath of Americans. So, right now, I keep kind of changing my thinking, and I'm less worried about understanding how do we communicate, how does the Ford party communicate with a particular independent voter, and more it's well, we're just talking to Americans, right? This is 70 percent of us now. This is why are we trying to kind of parse this together when we're just talking to the broad swath of Americans? who just want accountability, who want representation, who want more choice, and who want their communities to be represented. So when we go to... I've had the pleasure of attending a number of executive committee meetings this year in Florida, in Arizona, in Texas. And to say that the executive committee and the state lead structure of a particular state is closer to Republican solutions and traditionally conservative solutions to our issues or Traditionally more progressive, democratic solutions to our nation's issues. That's just not what we're seeing in these rooms. It is so broadly representative of Americans from a whole broad swath of socioeconomic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, regional backgrounds, generational backgrounds. There is no kind of face of a forwardist. It's not you know forwardist doesn't look like this or believe this, and that's true nationally, but it's true just within communities as well. So you'll have someone who was a, I mean, this is actually like real-time example on our Florida executive committee. We have someone who is a volunteer for Andrew's campaign. When he ran for the president, we have someone who is a volunteer for the Biden campaign and when he was running for election. And those folks, generationally, they're young, they're both Latino and then sitting next to them we have a gentleman who is an older white gentleman who ran for office as a Republican and they are functioning together on a executive committee with bylaws with structures just with mutual respect kindness appreciation for pragmatism and consensus building so i can't nationally say anyone looks a certain way and i also can't drill down into any particular community and say anyone looks or feels a certain way
0: right so my question was more reflective of the old binary form of thinking and yours is really
1: doesn't exist.
0: The way you guys are looking at is really the plurality. Like where do we meet? So many of us are meeting in the middle. Jeffersonian
1: pluralism. It's unbelievable.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a really exciting vision. It's very frustrating when you're, you know, you see these surveys and it's like 70% of Americans believe that a woman should have some degree of reproductive freedom. You know what I mean? And it's always the fringes that are, that are determining things
1: or gun laws. And that's when we would go back to the notion of how we vote and how right now most of our states and municipalities structure our voting systems. And it's interesting right now, Governor DeSantis in an omnibus bill last year actually shoved in a ban on the adoption of ranked choice voting for municipalities in Florida. Texas has a bill on the floor right now, not only to ban RCV, but also to double the threshold of signatures required for ballot access for a new political party. Both of the Dakotas just passed bills banning ranked choice voting. Arizona, the legislature, the House ledge, put a bill on the governor's desk banning ranked choice voting. Just last week, she vetoed it. Governor Hobbs did. So if these things didn't unlock, if these reforms didn't unlock the hold that the two-party status quo has, right now, they wouldn't be so scared of them. They wouldn't be trying to ban them and get rid of them. I mean, these, they really are transformative. And Alaska is a great example of what happened last year with Lisa Murkowski and Mary Paltola. So you see what happens when they're adopted at the statewide level. Do
0: mm-hmm. you just want to quickly explain if people didn't follow that?
1: Yeah, so Alaska was a state where something called final five voting was adopted. And it is actually the combination of a nonpartisan primary. So again, where everybody runs on one ballot, and then a ranked choice voting general. So in that instance, everybody runs on one ballot. Anybody can vote for whomever, independent, Republican. And then the top, Alaska actually, what they adopted specifically as a top four primary. Nevada is in the process of pursuing a top five primary, but four people in Alaska, the top four finishers for every seat advanced to a ranked choice voting ballot. And so Sarah Palin ran alongside I think it was 40 candidates to replace the at-large House seat in Alaska. And what ended up happening is Mary Paltola was victorious there. She's the first indigenous Alaskan ever to be sent to the United States House of Representatives. So really, really exciting. And Lisa Murkowski survived a really bitter race there as well against a Trump-endorsed candidate. That she, if in a closed party primary, would not have come through. Um, and Lisa Murkowski was, you know, one of a, a handful of, of Republican members that not only voted to certify the election results coming out of 2020, but also voted for impeachment of President Trump. You know, she's doing that as a representative of her communities and the people of Alaska, and representing her constituents. If she is kind of hindered by a closed party primary whereby she has to appeal to the farthest extremes within her party, she's not going to be free to do that. And then that gets back to our entire premise, which is every community is different and should be represented by someone who has their best interests at heart, not the interests of whatever the notion of the party platform extremes are.
0: Okay. Well, like I said, I think this is very exciting. I really do hope that this takes off in a meaningful way and that at the very least these reforms get enacted because it will be transformational. There's no question.
1: There's so many organizations doing really, really great work around this, Nancy. And what's fun is in 2021, they weren't able to convene in person. And so the Republican Party of Virginia used ranked choice voting and chose Glenn Youngkin as their candidate to run as the Republican candidate for governor in Virginia. So what's exciting is the Republican Party of Virginia loves ranked choice voting, and they're now adopting it in perpetuity. So other places where in Alaska, for example, folks are saying, oh, well, Sarah Palin lost because of ranked choice voting. Well, Republicans like it other places. So these aren't partisan reforms. They're totally nonpartisan in, in their application and adoption.
0: Right. So is there anything we can cover that you'd like to let our listeners
1: know? Or how they can get involved? Yeah, well, go to forwardparty.com. You can hover on, uh, we have a map of all 50 states. You can hover on the state and click in there, put your information in there, and you will get a phone call from one of our state's leads. They're pretty incredible. So there are all sorts of ways that you can get involved. It breaks it down on the website. And we are hosting June 22nd through the 25th, our first ever state's leads summit in Aurora, Colorado. We've got 400 forwardists gathering from across the country. And it's going to be an opportunity for our state leads both to engage in some training and best practices as relates to messaging, field organizing, fundraising, and also an opportunity for the state's leads actually to start to vote on the roadmap of what it really looks like for the Ford party to continue to scale its its foundation and its work. Because again, this isn't a prescriptive political party. We want the states to come to the table, have a voice and actually actively vote. Obviously, through methods of ranked choice voting or star voting or fusion (laughs) voting. Something exciting, but we want them to have that opportunity to weigh in on the direction that they want to take this. This isn't for us. And I've told everybody as the CEO that if I do my job well, and if we all do our job well in in six or seven years, I actually work myself out of a job because the objective would be for the state's leads to determine their own leadership and to elevate their own leadership, you know, and not have it be determined by a board.
0: Okay. Well, That's great. I hope you don't have a job in six to seven years.
1: (laughs) Wouldn't that be great?
0: (laughs) Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on New Faces of Democracy. And it's been great talking to you. And I really look forward to seeing where the forward party ends up.
1: It's been great talking to you, Nancy. Thank you for
0: having me. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook.